Hello and welcome to Nobody's Watching, a show about the benefits of music, singing and dancing. I'm Claudia, your host, and I'll be interviewing experts, amateur dancers and music lovers to collect stories and scientific research on the positive impact of music and dance. This first series is a collection of interviews with people who used music as a way to get themselves through the pandemic. This episode is part two of the conversation with Rick Barter, whose musical lockdown project was called Dance with Uncle Ricky. If you haven't heard part one, I recommend you start from there. In part two, Rick shares some fun, non-dance related stories from his past, which include how he almost got deported from France, how he landed a translation gig at the Atlanta Olympics, and how he ended up in Yoko Ono's kitchen. At the start of episode one, you might remember Rick's reaction when I told him I had researched him online. I told him everything I found was very innocent, but in this episode, you'll hear me try and source the juicy stories live. Listen till the end to find out if I was successful. Here was the rest of my conversation with Rick. So you've mentioned Paris, and I think this is a great moment to read out something that I found on the internet about you in Paris, and I would just love to hear this story. I discovered that you are the artistic director for Shocks for Sure Theatre, and you did a play in 2016, and there's a blurb with more information about you as part of the promotion of the play, and I'm just going to read this out. This is from your bio. His first professional job as an actor in a play by UNESCO in French at a Paris left-bank alternative cabaret theatre in 1981 caused him to almost be deported from France for overstaying his student visa. Can you tell us more about that, please? How wild, how wild is that, Claudia? I was, there were several other stories I was worried you were going to tell. <laughs> but this one, no, this one I'm fine with. Um, yeah, how wild is that? There was, uh, I did, uh, I went to university in America uh, and then did uh, my junior year abroad. It's that thing that Americans do, right? Where they take one year of university someplace else. And, and I went to Paris. And one of the drama teachers at the Tufts in Paris thing uh, was also a director who who performed in cabaret theaters and stuff like that. And he had converted this Ionesco piece, which wasn't a stage piece, um, into a little play. And, and it ran every night uh, at 6.30 in this little tiny venue in the basement of a, an art center south of the Thames, uh, south of the Seine. And, and it was called Parlons Francais, and I played an American cowboy. So I had to learn the script in French and then unlearn it to say, so I could speak French with a Texas accent. That was fun. Uh, and it was profit share. So as long as there were more of us on stage than there was in the audience, we performed. And if there were fewer people in the audience than there would have been on stage, we just took them upstairs to the bistro and bought them a drink instead. It was cheaper and easier. Um, and yeah, I did that uh, from, I replaced, uh, I knew the guy I replaced. And then I stayed with it for six months. And then all of a sudden, I got a letter in the mail from the the government or something. And the French are very polite when they threaten you with deportation, by the way. Um, it was the most polite letter I've ever received. And they basically gave me 72 hours to leave France. And if I didn't leave France, they were going to deport me and then it gets stamped in your passport and you can never come back again, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I got tossed out of France for work, for having outstayed my student visa for earning an income and they gave me 72 hours to leave the country of my own accord. So how wild is that? 
so I'm guessing you made it out of the country. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Dodge that bullet. Um, <laughs> and, and I had forgotten about it for years actually. And then, and then it came up again because we were doing some bio stuff. And I thought, oh yeah, it is kind of cool that my first ever paid gig was like in Paris, in French, when I was 20. Right? That was that year, Tufts Abroad, that year in Paris when I was when I was uh 19 matters, oddly enough. Because I think it was the year I figured out that the world was very, very big and life was very, very short. So mm-hmm. I went back to America, had to finish university, uh and then almost instantly started planning, when am I going to get out again? When am I going to, to go? Uh, and that, as you alluded to in the little bio you did at the beginning of this, right? Um, that's where uh, I've lived in Vienna. Then I lived in Canary Islands and I lived in Beirut. People kept saying to me, aren't you afraid to live in Beirut? Aren't you afraid to live in Beirut? And it was like, excuse me, I grew up in New York in 1973. Do you think Beirut scares me? Get real. And then ended up here. But I think that idea of, and this isn't at all hip, it's it's uh, from a Barbara Streisand movie. Uh, but in Yentl, in, in the big song at the end, she has this bit where she says, it all began the day I found that from my window I could only see a piece of sky. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I figured out that life was very short and the world was very big and I needed to get busy. So, yeah, I've had a weird sort of, isn't that, isn't that white people always call themselves expats? Right? They don't want to say immigrants. If you're a white person, you're an expat. Uh, so I've had this weird sort of expat. I'm not an expat anymore, by the way. I'm British, so there you go. Uh, I became British years ago. Um, but that was, and, and I think that was reflected in the dance with Uncle Ricky music too, right? That there was some really weird German stuff from the early 1980s because I happened to live in Vienna in the 1980s. And there was some you know, Italian stuff, because I had an Italian boyfriend. And why be dull? Why be dull? This kind of reminds me of, I will never forget the first time you came to a silent disco event. And you said you were a little bit nervous about joining initially, but because you believe in doing something that scares you every day, then you pushed yourself to come. So when was it that you decided to have this life philosophy i'm uh, not sure if that's oh the right i have way. oh it is oh it is and it's it's lifelong fanboy you know uh, gay men have their divas right and and uh when i was in in high school i was still in high school i was in this class and you were supposed to do a, a paper a project about an american president and you had to you know write a proposal and get them to agree to it it was a big chunk of work right it was one of those things and I made the strongest argument I could why I wanted to do Eleanor Roosevelt. Not Franklin Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. And I have been an enormous fan of Eleanor Roosevelt my entire life. And Eleanor Roosevelt once said, you should do one thing every day that scares you. And I have for years, if I could move the camera and take you in, you know, the listeners can't hear it, can't see it. Uh, I still have it taped to the bathroom mirror. I try to do one thing every day that scares me. And when you think about someone like Eleanor Roosevelt, who was born to privilege, but quite frankly, the cards were also stacked against her, right? She had an unhappy childhood and a husband who was unfaithful and all this kind of stuff. And and yet the woman went on to like found the United Nations, right? So I think this idea of constantly challenging yourself 
I think that that comes into that that whole expat idea. I love not always knowing what the word for stapler is or plumber or something like that, right? There's a sense of, and I think some people that would drive them nuts, that uncertainty, that sense of, okay, this is terrifying. I don't have the slightest idea how to call a plumber in Spanish, but I'm going to do it because I have no choice. Uh, to me is when you feel most alive. So yeah, that's not me. That's my lifelong fanboy addiction to Eleanor Roosevelt, the greatest woman of the 20th century. Eleanor Roosevelt said, do one thing every day that scares you. I love that. And what are some of your favorite scary things that you've done? Do you know what? The thing is that it doesn't have to be a big, you know, terrifying thing. Moving to Beirut was freaky, right? <laughs> Moving to Beirut was absolutely freaky. And my parents were against it. And everyone's like, are you crazy? Are you crazy? And as it turns out, through a, uh, I was hired by accident because the, the, they thought I was British and I wasn't. And, and, and so I arrived at, um, I have two little uh, footnotes next to my name, which are both really cool. I arrived at Beirut airport the day after the travel ban had been lifted for Americans to, to go to Lebanon. Wow. And so I happened to be after the Civil War. So what what years were that? Sorry, just that would have been 1995, maybe. I don't know. I'm not good with year six, something like that. Uh, And I was the first American to legally enter Lebanon after the Civil War, which is kind of cool. And then some guy picked me up in a car. He didn't speak English. And, and and we're driving through these these warehouse districts with burning barrels everywhere. I'm thinking I'm going to be kidnapped, but at least I'll make the front page of the New York Times. And then there's a fun, the other funny little footnote is when I lived in Vienna, Austria has a social contract between employers and employees. And there's something called a Betriebsra, a workers' council, that has to be part of any business. And it has to be representative of the workforce. The law also specifies that they have to be Austrian citizens. But what do you do? I was working at a big international school where the majority of the employees were not Austrian citizens, right? Were our rights as workers being, you know. So me and a woman from the Jewish Welfare Agency are somehow mentioned in an act of Austrian law in the parliament. We were the first two non-Austrians to ever be allowed to serve on a workers' council. Wow. cool is that? And once again, why did I even want to be on a workers' council? Do one thing every day that scares you. So were you teaching in Beirut? I was a librarian. Ah. I started life after university as an actor, but that's more thin. And then I became a primary school teacher. I retrained as a school librarian, and that's how I moved around the world. I was Mm -hmm. working as a school librarian. Uh, And then... Here in London, my, I had my last job, and I knew I would hate it. I, it long story, let's not go there. Uh, so when I walked away from that job is when I decided, okay, I'm only 45 years old. What am I going to do? I've got an idea. I'll buy a bookshop mm. because that seems like a good thing to do. Um, so in that, and then I did that for 14 years, and then uh, got divorced and sold the bookshop, and all sorts of things happened all at once, and suddenly figured out in my late 50s you know what, I'd, I'm in a really privileged position. As long as I don't like start going buying yachts and stuff like that, I can do what I want for the rest of my life, as long as I'm a little bit careful with money. And that's what I do. And so I got to go to your... And that was, 
being free all day, I would sit around and look for stuff to do, right? And I, I still remember when I saw the first ad for Nobody's Watching. And it was because it was at Roof East, which is around the corner from my house, which I like. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go. Uh, sun- it was Sunday noon or something, wasn't it? It was in the middle of the afternoon. And I thought, I'll go and see how that goes. And as it turns out, it was amazing, transformative. And I've never shut up about it since. <laughs> yes, you've been amazing at promoting me. And I'm very, very grateful. I'm going to go back then to your passion for theatre. And I'd love to hear a bit more about, first of all, I saw a mention of musicals. So it sounds like you can sing pretty well. And do you have like any training in musicals? What's your toe dipping in the musical world? Oh, Claudia, Claudia, Claudia. <laughs> Gay men in their musicals. Um, no, I think, I. you know what? Yeah, I did. I figured out... Uh, if I had to criticize, I'd make it a point never have regrets in life. But if I had to criticize myself and have a regret about anything, it's that I very often will compromise. And instead of following my dream, I will figure out a way to partially follow my dream by doing something. You know what I mean? So I'm going to move to Beirut, but as a librarian. Mm. Or I'm going to, you know what I mean? And so it was a sensible way to vaguely do what you want to do. And I, I still remember the third grade, when I, which is your eight, uh, third grade Indian pageant, a racist piece of shit. Sorry, I shouldn't use brown language on your thing, but I am sure it was appallingly racist. I have seen photos of it, it genuinely, but it was 1966 or whatever it was. Third grade, I got to play the, the medicine chief and I got to blow some magic powder on some wounded brave. And it was fabulous. It was, it was, oh, this is so much fun because then it's not me. It's someone else. I get to be someone else. I get to be whoever I want to be. I get to, yeah. So I did that through high school and uh, my university, my degree is actually in theater, drama. And as you mentioned, I did a little bit of, of, of work um, professionally after college there's a, there's a, do you know who Vito Russo is, was? No. There's a guy called Vito Russo who wrote a book. There's since been a documentary made about his life that has the same name. And it's called um, The Celluloid Closet. And it looked at the queer representation in cinema from the earliest days. And when I was 23, uh, a friend of mine was, uh, Vito Russo had gotten himself a public access television show called Our Time, and it was going to be the first ever show by, for, and about LGBTQ people produced in America. Uh, There were 12 episodes, and a friend of mine was a production assistant, and they recorded all the interviews and stuff for the AIDS episode and decided that it was a bit dark. Um, So they got Roll Arena. Anyone from New York might remember Roll Arena. They got Roll Arena, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and me, of all people, in to do a skit. And they would they would have these skits that they between the interviews, these lighthearted skits. So I did that. Uh, I was, and once again, another little footnote to history. And the funny thing about that was that I never saw it when it went out because uh, I was working that night. I was temping someplace, and the friend of mine who was supposed to record it didn't. And it turned up. The footage was assumed lost, and it turned up when someone was working on a biography of Vito Russo a couple of years ago. And so I got to see myself perform for the first time in 30 some odd years. It was like just meta beyond all comprehension. The skit was moderately humorous. Apparently, if you feed quiche to 
white mice, they demand Bette Midler videos and it turns them gay. Um, quiche was a thing in the 80s. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, and then, and then I set that part of my life aside, right? I was traveling, I was working as a librarian and all that stuff. And then uh, about seven, eight years ago, 10 years ago, maybe, uh, yeah, I got dragged out to do a little Amdram, and then that was good. And then I uh, started this this company, uh, Shocks for Shore Theater, which has sort of been asleep for five years, but it does still exist as a venue if I ever want to release something or do something. Uh, and there's a sense of performance. There's a sense of fantasy of being alive, right, of being totally in control. Uh, and I'm not someone who feels in control a lot in my life. Mm. And I normally I embrace that, but I also embrace this opportunity to be up there on the stage and I, I can make you laugh, I can make you cry, I can do whatever I want. So yeah, there is that sort of theatrical thing that I've always had going as well as a little side gig. Yeah, and I saw something else that was mentioned in your bio that was quite oh, interesting God. related to the Olympics. The Olympics? You mean in Stratford? The Stratford Olympics? No, sorry, let me just... Oh, Atlanta! Yes! Atlanta! Yes! Oh, this was wild! Okay, yeah, this is a fun story. All right, the Atlanta Olympics. So this one, you're going to ask years and I'm not an expert. Go look it up. Whenever the Atlanta Olympics were. One of the things the Atlanta Olympics were criticized for at the time was being too commercial, mm. which is really funny considering that we built a shopping mall next to the Olympics here in London. Yeah. Um, but it was Atlanta was really the first one to do that, and they were deeply criticized for it. The Canary Islands b- built a pavilion and, and had a little film, a little informational film that they were going to show in their pavilion. And, and it was a bit cheesy, but whatever. And they had spent a lot of money on this and they were all really excited. And then someone pointed out that most people in Atlanta don't speak Spanish. So because I knew someone who knew the guy, this is a case of just, you know, six degrees of separation. Uh, And she had a a thick Northern accent and I have an American accent. Uh, They paid me and I had to sit down with the video. This was an actual videotape. And they couldn't afford to redo anything, so I had to time the translation so that I was speaking when the guy in Spanish was speaking, so they could layer my vocals directly on top of his. So it was a translation task, but it was also a performance task. And uh, yeah, so I did it. I got paid, I don't know, 500 euros or something for it. And we went into a little studio, and we recorded it. And my one tip to anyone ever tempted to do something like that is never, ever, ever, ever use the phrase continent in miniature. It's impossible to say. Um, and so, yeah, that got shown at the Atlanta Olympics. And, and there was a picture in the paper of the Queen of Spain sitting there watching. And it was just a picture, so you couldn't tell uh, which soundtrack they were doing. But I like to think she was listening to me in English to show she was cultured. <laughs> But yeah, so that was a weird, th- and l- once again, there's this idea, isn't it, that in life, life throws you interesting, interesting possibilities. You just have to be paying attention, right? And every now and then think, okay, do one thing every day that scares you. I've never done a, a, a video translation. I've never done a narration of a tourist video. You know, this scares the pants off of me. Well, it turns out I was pretty good at it. So yes, I did. Atlanta Olympics. Oh, you did. This is a deep dive into Uncle Ricky. (laughs) Yes, I have done my research. 
it's scary. It's a little bit scary here, Claudia, because I know next to nothing about you by comparison. Uh-huh. All right, go on. We go can on. do an interview next time where you dig up weird things about me on the internet and ask Ooh, me about reverse, one of those reverse interviews. interviews. Oh, that could be fun. We should do that. We should do that. That could be fun. Um, so this is kind of you serving this to me on a silver plate. But when I brought up these couple of things, you said oh, I'm glad that you found that and not these other things I was scared that you would find. So I haven't found anything that is scary, but um, do you want to volunteer? Because I assume that people I know will be listening to this as well as people who are, in, who are interested in your podcast. Um, and to any of those people out there and the sound of my voice, I'm just going to say the words Greece, Easter, 1980, and leave it at that, all right? Yeah, no, I have done some things that uh, were fairly impressive, um, slightly shocking, and in many ways, it's amazing I'm still here. Uh, but yeah, no, we're not going to talk about any of those. If you, if, you don't, if you can't find the dirt, I'm not going to give you the dirt. Ugh. Well, so that's that's all we're getting. Greece, Easter, nineteen eighty. Yeah, I'm not going further. I will tell. You, I will tell you. I once got to see the inside of Yoko Ono's apartment. That's cool. How did yeah. that happen? I, I I picked up a guy in a bar in Columbus Avenue, and uh, he said, uh, "Do you want to go to my place?" And I said, "Yeah." And it turns out he lived in the Dakotas, the famous apartment building on Central Park West in Dakota, and he'd been very cagey. He was someone's PA, but he said, "I can't talk about my employer," and I, you know, you don't ask. And so we go to the Dakota, which is in and of itself interesting. And we're on, going up the back service stairs as opposed to the front stairs. And I said to him, look, you really have to tell me because I hate to name drop. And this is vaguely embarrassing. But I went to high school with Leonard Bernstein's daughters who live in the same building. And I went to a fundraiser at um, Susan Strasberg's who was in the same building. And I said, so if it's anything involving Susan Strasberg or, or, or you know, Leonard Bernstein, you really need to tell me. And then he said, no, it was Yoko Ono. So as it turns out, the guy's room was just off the kitchen. I was in his room for a while and then left directly through the kitchen. I never saw Yoko Ono. I never saw her house, but I did have sex in Yoko Ono's house. Well, that's something that I'm pretty sure most people can't say they did, so... Yeah. Yeah. And the problem with those kind of stories is it always sounds like you're name dropping as opposed to uh, here's this ridiculously stupid thing I did. But yeah, so there are some of those, but no, no. But Greece, someday in person, I will tell you about Greece. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of someday in person, now that things are sort of slowly changing I, I won't say going back to normal because who knows when that will happen but do you have a bucket list of things that you want to do things that you're looking oh. forward to and also things that maybe you're nervous about doing again what does sort of unfolding of the next few months look like for you do you know it's interesting I read there was an article I read in the paper about this and there is there are two schools of thought right is that we on the one hand society will never return to what it was and and a lot of venues will never reopen and the world has changed and and on the other hand someone said or it could be like the 1920s um where the screws have suddenly you know and there could be this explosion of partying and and then i'm i'm voting for the 1920s on this um i i think what i will most and this is such a pretentious answer 
what I am most looking forward to are the museums. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just as I love music because it feeds my soul. I love art because it feeds my soul. Um, and it, it hurts me that there have been no museums. It really, really hurts me. Um, there is a picture in the basement of the National Gallery by an artist you've never even heard of, of some lilacs in a vase. And I, whenever I'm in central London, will run in that building long enough to look at that one picture because it just makes my heart smile. So yeah, I miss stuff like that. I'm, I'm look, I miss your sessions. I'm, I'm looking forward to those starting again. And it's funny, one of the, the th- things we didn't talk about is that I volunteer with a charity called Host Nation. Mm, let's talk about that a little bit. Host Nation's really cool. And we work with refugees and asylum seekers. And there are agencies that are in charge of their housing and their health and their education and all of this kind of stuff. Our job is just to be their friends. We call it befriending. And you just end up being assigned somebody and spending time with them, making them feel like London is their home, right? You know, doing the sorts of things you would do with any sort of Londoner. And one of the things that's been challenging through the lockdown is that some of my favorite Riverside walks, for example, Wapping or Greenwich, are great because of the pubs. And so it's been trying to find, I'm going out this afternoon with a guy uh, called Alex, and we're going to go to North Greenwich because I understand there's all sorts of changes in North Greenwich that I'm curious about. But so I look forward to being able to go to the pub again, to being able to think you can have a really long walk because you can have a pub break in the middle. And I look forward to the theaters being open. That was my, everyone in their life has the one thing they spend far too much money on that they that they're actually embarrassed about how much money they spend on it. And for me, it's theater. It always has been. And I normally go, what, maybe once, twice, three times a week. Uh, it's, It's my favorite thing to do in the world. And I think that will be one of the last things to come back. But yeah, I'm not dreading this at all. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I I've gotten very fat, uh, just sitting here in front of a monitor all day for 14 months or whatever it is. So I'm looking forward to the world being open again, fully open, not like kind of open, and being able to go to a tube station and just assume it's open, not that they've changed it. Then there's a one-way entrance and another way exit, and social, you know. But I, like I said, there are two schools of thought about what's going to happen. I think it, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being back out in the world. Uh, and I'm looking forward to your workshop, to your sessions. I never know what to call them. Sessions, workshops, dances. What do you call them? I call them events. 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 I like events. Okay. Nobody's watching events. I look forward to those. Although, as you know, I famously do not like the first 10 minutes. <laughs> I, I know everyone else likes... Now, for those of you listening who have never been to one of Claudia's events, for the first 10 minutes, you ha- you're, it's like you have to do stuff that she tells you to do. Right? And there'll be like a song, and it's a good song, and you have to like learn the gestures and do the little dance that goes along with the song. I'm immensely uncomplicated, and I don't like following directions. And, and I'm not particularly coordinated, and you know, I, so I don't like that part. But I know most people do. I know most people do, and that it actually sets up the rest of the event because it loosens people up physically, it loosens people up emotionally. You've made a fool of yourself in front of these people, so why do you care? Um, 
but yeah, I'm looking forward to your events, but not the first 10. <laughs> I think because you have the unfair advantage of not caring what people think about you. So you don't need the first part. Um, uh, but lots of other people do feel self-conscious, especially for some people, it's their first time dancing sober. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but for well, anyone it. listening, just to reassure you, they are very silly. Like, you know, I'll teach how to do the Carlton. They're very ridiculous dance moves. So, Vogue. I can still, yeah. yeah, the day you made me Vogue. Um, uh, yeah, no. And as you could tell, by because I went for a lot of these sessions of events, um, uh, there were days I just didn't try. There were days I just sort of sat in the corner and sort of moved vaguely like everyone else was. I'm going, there's no way I'm going to do this. No way I'm going to do this, uh, but it's fine. Like you said, it it gets it sets the mood in the room and and it makes everyone happy. So, well, I can't wait to do that again with you. This has been an amazing interview. I think it's a, a good spot to end on. And thank you so much for all these wonderful, wonderful stories. It's, I feel like I could talk to you forever. So I hope uh, listeners enjoyed the golden nuggets that you've shared. And thank you so much for, for coming along. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, hey, you know, I don't get asked out that often. So it was interesting. But I've really enjoyed uh, Nobody's Watching. And I think, like I said, with the Dance with Uncle Ricky Facebook posts and all this kind of stuff, it has affected the shape of my life in a good way. So thank you for having me on. The really scandalous stories will have to wait till you have me on again. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a review if you're listening on iTunes and sharing it with your friends and family so you can help spread the word about the show. Thanks for listening.